Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 6, Pastor Murphy has been showing us the doctrine of sanctification and the believer's responsibility. This week we'll wrap up the first section of chapter 6 and we'll see two triumphs of grace in the believer's life. I'd like you to turn with me, please, back to the book of Romans. The book of Romans is heavily doctrinal. Until we come to chapter 12, it's very heavily doctrinal. And the temptation often is to bypass uh, something in Romans chapter 6 and get fast into chapter 12. But I think that would be detrimental to understanding um, the book of Romans. And uh, I hope you stay with me when it comes to heavy thinking and uh, actually engage in your mind uh, in Scripture. I'd like you to turn then for Romans chapter 6, and we worked our way down to this chapter. And we are at verse number 14 this morning. It was one of the verses I really, really wanted to bypass, I'll be honest with you. I really wanted to bypass this verse because I said, you know what, spending time on this verse, um, it, it requires, again, further doctrinal explanation what this verse means. But I, I feel constrained not to bypass it. And maybe you were puzzled by why Paul would introduce this verse at this juncture. Uh, and I hope this morning to give you an understanding of how it works into Paul's frame of thought in dealing with this whole question of sanctification. I want to talk to you this morning using that verse of the triumphs of grace. The triumphs of grace. But let us read from verse number 1 to verse number 14, very short verses, nothing large. And you can see the continuity of thought, I think, if you read these first 14 verses. So let me just read that for you. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also uh, should we walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey in the lust thereof. 
Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. Now notice this verse. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with a very difficult text. We sometimes, in reading scripture, uh, if we are not interpreting it properly, can lose the continuity of the context and not fully grasp the teaching. There are times when the Apostle Paul seemed to interject a passage that seems unrelated and somehow it confounds us why he should introduce uh, a passage such as this. I pray this morning that you'll give us the wisdom to understand the Pauline teaching. Help us to understand the, the text in the context of which Paul wrote it. And help us to get a greater understanding of how grace has triumphed and how because of grace we have a new indwelling nature, a new life. And that new life empowers us that we will no longer sit under the tyranny and reign of habitual sin. We have victory. That's our legacy. It is what Christ has bequeathed to us as a result of his death and his resurrection. And I pray this morning that that fact might become even more keenly uh, in our minds as we grasp the teaching that is here. Lord, there may be someone who is in this church this morning and who is pummeled by habitual sinning. They are almost like an addict. Uh, they desist for a while and then they go back. They crave it. And they do not know how to defeat this matter. I pray this morning as we go into this passage that the mechanics of how this defeat comes about would enable that person to appreciate that if they could just grasp the scriptures and what God has done for us and by faith, uh, act upon what God has revealed to us and claim the promises that God has uh, given to us that uh, by that act of faith uh, we are empowered to have the victory over our besetting sin. Help us not be comfortable this morning as believers and help us to really search our hearts and let not one of us here be deceiving ourselves in respect to biblical Christianity in regards to habitual sin. It is not God's will and God has willed that the believer not be dominated by sin. It is not God's will and therefore God by his grace has brought about a means whereby that system that controlled us was broken and we can have the victory. I pray you remind us of these truths and help us not to in any way rationalize our way out of this thinking uh, may we be very uh, faithful to your word in not only understanding it, but practicing it. Help me now this morning and give me the wisdom, give me the insight, give me the capacity to speak your word uh, so that your people can grasp the teaching that is here. 
also give the audience patience and, uh, uh, and the will to understand that this is God's word and we have to pay attention to God's word. This is God's day and therefore we should not be looking at our clocks and our watches to see if the food is ready or if we're going to go somewhere on the beach. Uh, help us to understand that we've been given six days for ourselves and one day for you. Help us not to abuse your day and rob you of the uh, privilege and opportunity of having your word explained. We ask you and pray these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 6 is where we are again this morning. And I have mentioned repeatedly, as I've done this series of studies in the book of Romans, that without question, there is no chapter on sanctification that is greater than what we have in Romans chapter 6. Without any form of controversy or debate, this is the greatest biblical passage dealing with the great doctrine of sanctification. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt that whatever we believe about salvation, the work of grace that was done when Christ died on the cross and Christ was resurrected, the whole purpose and design of that act was to bring the tyranny of sin to an end. A lot of people just think that you're safe to go to heaven. Uh, I know you want to go to heaven, but that's not why God saved you. See? And I think that we, hold, we, we come forward because we want to get to heaven, we won't get to hell. But the whole reason why Jesus Christ came into this world and why God in his grace sent his son to die, the ultimate goal is to deal with sin in its totality. And when I say in its totality, I mean this. I mean that God has dealt through Christ at, with sin at three levels, at three dimensions. Christ's death on the cross dealt with sins in the past. That dealt with our guilt and it dealt with our condemnation. His death on the cross dealt with that. But it doesn't stop there. His work not only relates to sin in the past, it relates to sin in the present. And in the present, his work is designed to break the tyrannical rule of sin in the believer's life. To bring the reign of sin to, to, to an end. See? But it doesn't even stop there either. It not only deals with the past and the present, his death also deals with the future. When one day, as a result of the work he has done for us on the cross we will be actually removed from the very presence of sin. This is what salvation is all about. And this is what is the ultimate goal of Christ coming to die on the cross. And Romans chapter 6 lets us know that the believer in his ongoing life has a new nature and he has a battle with sin, but he wants him to know that that habitual sin in your life has got to end. I repeat, it has got to end. And this is what Paul is dealing with in this passage. So there's a supernatural work of grace that brings about a transformation in the believer's life and that transformation results in the believer not allowing sin to dominate his life any longer. Now I want to ask you a question before I go any further. Is that true of your life? 
Is that true of your life? If it is not true of your life, something is wrong. I repeat, if that is not true of your life, something is wrong. It means one of two things. It means either God doesn't know what he's saying, or it means that you are deceiving yourself. Those are the only two options. I say that to say this, that the older I live as a pastor and as a Christian, I'm very, very convinced that there are a lot of people who are deluding themselves. Really do. I believe that with all my heart. See, They have not had any real significant change in their life and they know it. Nothing has really changed about them and they know it. See, But they go on telling themselves, I am saved. I am in the kingdom. When in actual fact, everything that they hear from the pulpit tells and screams and said something is wrong. See? Look, the salvific work of Christ accomplishes four things. Number one, it brings a death to the old man. And what I mean by the old man, it takes you out of the old Adam and it puts you in Christ. The old man is dead. The old man doesn't exist any longer. You are now in Christ. See, That's a reality. Secondly, it imparts a new nature to you as a believer. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. The old man is dead and now a new nature is implanted in you. Thirdly, that new nature severs you and your personality from the sin nature. That's why the Bible says dead. The word death means to separate. To separate. Something took place in your life when you got saved. And that new nature came between your sin nature and your personality. Before, your sin nature and your personality were virtually the same. That's why you couldn't help yourself. But now that new nature comes in between and creates death, as it were. Separation from the sin nature. And then fourthly, that enables the believer to now have freedom of will. To resist sin. You don't have to sin. And you only sin. Because you choose to sin as a believer. This is false teaching. In fact I would go a step further to say this. When the believer does sin. The believer feels guilty. He feels miserable. And he feels unhappy. Because of the sin nature. Within himself. If you are here before me this morning and you can sin with impunity, you have no sense of guilt, you have no sense of misery, you have no sense of unhappiness, I am saying to you as your pastor, you're lost. You're lost. The sin nature and the, and the evil and the, and the new nature in you that new nature will make you feel guilty and sad and bad and unhappy and miserable when you sin. If it doesn't, you do not have the new nature. Pastor, you shouldn't say that. I just said it. And I'll repeat it again because it is true. It is true. Look, I am not here to please anybody, you know. I'm not here to get people to clap me down and uh, give me hallelujahs and so that's not my purpose. 
I have one single purpose when I'm preaching, and that is to tell you what God's word says. And if it happens to offend you, that that's the word of God, I am just a messenger. See? And I must speak to you plainly and clearly what the Bible teaches on this subject. Now, I would like to say, ask you that when you begin to find that what the Bible teaches is not in harmony with your experience, I want to advise you to do the same thing Paul advised the Corinthians to do. You know what he said to them? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He's writing to the disciples. He's writing to the people, the church that he founded. And he tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. He says these words. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Prove your own self. Know ye not your, your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates? Now imagine Paul telling his church that. People that he led to Christ as it were. There are times in every life when we need to examine our lives. Because when we discover that our lives are in conflict with what God reveals, it should be concerned to us that something is wrong somewhere and it cannot be God. It has to be us. Did you know it's possible to tell yourself something repeatedly that you come to believe it as true, even though it's a lie? It is called moral hardness. It is called spiritual blindness. And I believe it's possible for a person to come to that point of hardness where there is no return. I believe that. I really, really sincerely believe that. When you reach that stage, you become so insensitive to God's word that it no longer impacts your life whatsoever. You know, it's like I take in my hand with all my nerve endings and putting it on a hot plate and burning out the nerve endings. Once those nerve endings are gone, I can now take my hand, I can cut my hand, I can put it in the fire, and I can no longer feel it is called a seared hand. And the Bible talks about a seared conscience. See? As though your conscience becomes so cauterized that you're no longer responsive to anything in the Bible. Watch. Oh, you sit and you listen. But it doesn't affect your life. Because your conscience is dead. It's hardened. See? When you reach that stage, you're in a real difficult stage, my dear friend. And the only thing that can bring you out of that is the mercy and the grace of God. No amount of preaching can bring you out of that state. See? It's a fearful thought. But that's when you hear people saying that I feel so hopeless and helpless. And they live a life of defeat. And they don't feel that anything can change them any longer. See? I hope this morning... That I'm not speaking to people who have reached that stage. For I am saying to you that such a defeatist posture is not in scripture in regards to the believer. The New Testament calls a believer to take action in his life. Now Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. 
Paul says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Ephesians said that you must put off these things and put on these new things. Galatians said that we must mortify the flesh and walk in the spirit. These are things that God expects of us. These are things believers should do and can do. And if we have no desire for these things, we are missing God in our lives. Something is wrong. You know, when you come to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, it tells us that God's power is at work in our lives. And the power that is at work in our lives, Ephesians tells us, is the resurrection power of Christ. When we come to Philippians, the apostle Paul said, it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. So when a person says, I don't have any will, I can't do, something is wrong. Because God is at work in you both to will and to do, to motivate you to do. So when you resign in resignation and say, I can't help myself, it's no use any longer, I just give up. That's not biblical Christianity. And you are saying by that statement that God is not at work in your life when the Bible says he is at work in the life of the believer. What Paul does in verse number 14 of this chapter as he begins to elaborate on this great doctrine of sanctification is this. The Apostle Paul is now summarizing what he said in verse 1 to verse 13. Remember we said when we studied this book that this chapter is divided into two sections. It goes from verse 1 to verse 14 and then from verse 15 to verse 23. And we pointed out to you that the way the chapter is divided is that Paul starts both sections with a similar verse. Remember, look back at verse number 1 for just a moment. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then from that on to verse number 14, he deals with the first section. When he begins the second session, look at verse 15, a similar verse. What then? Shall we sin because we are under the law and not under grace? You see the similar language? So this verse, verse 14, is a summary conclusion of all Paul has been saying in verses 1 to 13. And what Paul does now uh, in this chapter, in this verse, is to point out two things. He gives a reason why the believer should not let sin reign in his body to fulfill the lust thereof, and why the believer should not present his members of his body as instruments of unrighteousness. Notice it. He said in verse 14, the reason why, for sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the first reason. Two, for you're not under the law, but you're under grace. So he's given two reasons why you should not present your body members as instruments of unrighteousness and why you should not let lust rule in your life. I want to look at that for just a moment. And I want to point out to you what Paul is arguing here in this, uh, this verse is two things. First of all, Paul is saying to, to the believer, the reason why you must not let sin in your mortal life, we might not present your members. He said this, God has will that sin shall not have dominion over your life. That's his point. God has will that. It's God's purpose. Secondly, 
Paul is saying, you are not under law, you're under grace. So he deals with two things. Number one, it is God's will, and it is God's grace. And he will contrast under law and under... If you are under law, you cannot have victory. You will not have victory. Because the law does not give you the power for victory. And that's the point Paul is making. The only thing that will empower you to have victory in your life is God's grace. And that work of grace is what Christ has done for you. So God has willed that sin will not grow. And if God has willed that, it means that's God's purpose. And if that's God's purpose, God must make it happen. And God made it happen through the grace work of Christ. You see how ludicrous and how monstrous it is. For people to be saying, Paul, you talk so much about grace. You are encouraging people to sin that we may have more grace. Paul is offended that people will think that way. Because in Paul's thinking, that's an impossibility. And he gave you reason. But the impossibility is this. God has wills. So you mean that God's will is not going to come to pass? You mean that God's purpose is not going to come to pass? But not only that. You mean that God's grace is not powerful enough to give you victory? It's a monstrous thought, Paul is saying. And that's what we need to tell people who come sit in the church every Sunday morning and sit down comfortable and continue living in sin. We need to tell them that. You need to be woken up. But when you do that, now they're offended. And you tell them that. And they get angry at the pastor. Oh, he's preaching. He's preaching on the same thing again and again. It is shocking. Shocking the attitude of believers. But it's indicative of the state of the heart. I want to deal first of all with that first statement. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Remember, you notice the word for. Is an explanation of what he said in verse 12, 13 and 14. It's connected with 12 and 14. He's been talking about not surrendering yourself to the lust of the flesh, not yielding your members. And he said, For, here's the reason. See, sin shall not have dominion over you. I want to say to you uh, this morning that. You and I need to remember, as believers, that the reason for God sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world, one of the essential reasons is to break the power of sin in man's life. I repeat that, it's to break the power of sin in, man, in man's life. God from eternity is a holy God. God saw that Satan was able to deceive man to commit sin. God has seen the result of sin in man's life. And God has determined he will save a people that sin will not dominate their lives. So there's a, a class of people in the world where sin dominates their life. And God has determined in his will and his purpose, I will have a people that will not allow sin to dominate, will not practice habitual sin. And I will prove to the world I have the power.
power to do it. I will it. And it's going to happen. It is God's will. In this matter. The book of Hebrews reminds us. That one of the reasons Christ came was to totally destroy the works of Satan. And one of the great works of Satan is this matter of getting man and keeping man in a state of habitual sinning. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that it is Christ's work that crushed that power and brought victory to us. So I am saying to you this morning, the first statement is, God has willed that sin shall not have dominion over the believer's life. It is his will and his purpose. And that's for that reason. Paul is telling these people, don't present your members of unrighteousness and don't allow lust to rule in your life. Why? For God has determined, God has purpose, God has willed. What? That sin will not have dominion in your life. Let me just say this. I think we've got to change our tactics when we do evangelism. Because I am coming to the conviction that the form of evangelism that we do mislead people. We don't really deal with the issues that need to be dealt with to let a man make a rational decision, etc. I think we've got to include four elements when we're doing evangelism. Number one, we've definitely got to deal with the whole question of man's sin. You can't get a man saved until he understands and feels guilty of his sin. So if you go down the road and meet a guy in the road and just have a little camp conversation with him and tell him, you know, you're a sinner and God loves you and uh, all you need is to bow your head. Would you just bow your head today and just ask Jesus into your heart? You misled the person. You haven't really dealt with the issue. You haven't, he doesn't even have a sense of guilt. As a matter of fact, you're in his house. He wants to watch television. You came in and he's watching a soap opera. He wants to get you out very fast. And the best way to get you out is to say, okay, what do I do now? Well, you just say this little prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and, and save me. Or, you know what? Bow your head and say after me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and save me. And then we tell the person, you're saved. And God looks at that and says, you just send a man to hell. You don't even know it. You made it twice a child of hell. You know why? He believes he's saved. He's not saved. And later on in his life, he realizes it's not real. But now he's been an active Christian for so long. What does he do now? His pride keeps him believing that what he did 10 years ago that has no meaning in his life is what will get him into heaven. I say to you, we've got, as God's people, to deal with... Number two, we've got to deal with God's holiness when we're doing evangelism. I repeat, we've got to deal with God's holiness. The problem with us is that we all deal with God's love. We have a truncated gospel. And I think that's a major mistake in our evangelistic work. We go from man being a sinner to God's love and then to get saved. We don't deal with the matter of God's holiness. See? So they don't feel any conviction whatsoever. It's like a man talking to another man, but there's no depth of conviction. Because they don't understand how holy God is. 
The church is responsible for this dilemma that the world finds itself in. It really is. You know, if you were to read some of the lives of some of the missionaries, um, I mean, Kiri, I forgot how many years Kiri spent in India. I mean, years before he had one convert. <laughs> you do that on the mission field today, they call you home. <laughs> what are we paying all this money for you to be on the mission field for? You know, why are you in the mission field? And by the way, that is why American churches sometimes forces people to write lies in the newsletters. They like to hear, uh, I, we, I went out and we, we won four and 12 and so on. And they, they, you know, they like numbers. The reality is, you will be on the mission field for a, 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 and you hardly have a convert. See? But are you witnessing? That's the issue. Are you witnessing? Are you sharing the faith? God's holiness. Number three, we have to talk about God's love. And that's not a matter with people. I think everybody knows about God's love today. And probably they don't know about God's holiness. But we, and then number three, we got to talk about the work of grace. What it means when I get, a person gets saved. See, We don't spend time with that. Do we ever tell a person when it comes to faith and trust in Christ, listen, sir, do you really understand what you're doing and what is the significance of this decision? Do you understand what the grace of God in Christ Jesus and the world, what that work does in your life? Listen, it forgives you your past. I want you to know that there's not a sin you've ever committed that it cannot be. But do you realize, sir, it empowers you that you have victory over besetting sin and habitual sin. You cannot go back to the old life. Do we ever tell him that? And we explain why. Because the new nature comes within you. It creates a severance between your personality and sin. So it acts as a buffer between the two. You are no longer controlled by the sin nature. You are free not to sin. Do we ever explain that to them? Perhaps the reason why we don't do that, we're afraid to say, no, I'm not ready to be saved. If that's the case, I'm not ready to be saved because I really don't want what you're telling me here right now. I want heaven, sir. I don't want hell, but I want to be able to continue doing what I'm doing. Give me an insurance policy that I can continue doing what I'm doing and still get to heaven. The tragedy, real, real, real tragedy. I don't know if you don't feel it weeping sometimes and crying sometimes. When you understand the state of the world as far as religion is concerned and the church is concerned, it doesn't burden you in, in your heart what's happening. We got churches, everything is about music and entertainment. The church needs to weep. It needs to bawl. We need a deep repentance. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, see? God's will cannot be frustrated, not even by you. And when God says, for sin shall not have dominion, that God has willed that sin have dominion, that has to happen. See? Because God has willed it. A question is asked by, I think it's Jeremiah, who has resisted his will? See? We have. That's the question. We have. See? And we encourage other people to resist it as well. Because we have not in our dealing with our evangelistic work, we have not in any way uh, emphasized these things. 
Do you know what God wants to do when he saves you? What's his whole purpose? What's the design of it? Listen to this. The goal of your redemption is this. Christ wants to present you faultless and blameless without spot and without wrinkle before God. That's what he wants. I repeat. Christ wants to present you before God faultless and blameless without spot or wrinkle. You find that in 1 John chapter 3 verse 4 and Ephesians 5 verse 2. That's what he wants to do. That is what he will to do. And what he wants to accomplish in our lives. Let me say this morning that God has determined, determined that you would be sanctified as a believer. I repeat, he has determined that you be sanctified. And the word sanctified means that he will move you away from this habitual life of sinning to a life of God. He has determined. It is part of the predetermined counsel that the believer be sanctified. Let me show that to you for just a moment. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. 1. For this is the will of God, even your what? Sanctification. I repeat, God wills your sanctification. He wills your life of holiness. He wants you to move away from habitual sin to a life of victory in Christ. He has willed that. This is his will. How can his will not come to pass? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 26. He's talking about husband and wives. And he says, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, verse 25, that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse, cleanse it. That's why he saved you. To sanctify you. To give you victory over sin in your life. That's his will for you. In how many ways must he say? In how many verses must he say? Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 12. Fascinating verse. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might do what? Sanctify the people suffered outside the camp. Did, did you read that? Again, look at it carefully. Hebrews 13, 13, 12. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the camp. He suffered to sanctify you. To make you holy. To break the power of sin in your life. To give you a life of victory. That's why he died. That's why he shed his blood. It's not just to get you to heaven. It was to get you to heaven, your Savior, and take you immediately. He needs people to live like he was. 
And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse 23 for, and uh, along the same theme, around the same topic. Because it is true that God has willed our sanctification, because that Christ died for us to be sanctified, because he wants to present us faultless and without wrinkle or any spot before God. Paul in his prayer for these believers now, look how he prays for them in regards to this same subject. Chapter 5, verse 23. And the very God of peace do what? Sanctify you wholly. Notice what he goes on to say. And I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preferred blameless. Get those three. Your soul, your body, your spirit. Be preserved blameless. Until Christ returns. Now if the avowed purpose. Of Christ's uh, work of salvation. Is to produce a people whose lives are sanctified. How then. Is it not a monstrous thought. That any believer. Can believe. That they can be saved. And go on living a life of habitual sin. You tell me how that is possible. You tell me. You tell me. I'm not telling you pleasantries this morning to tickle your ear. I'm telling you words that are like the arrows to stick in your heart. To provoke you to think on these matters. So when Paul says in this passage dealing with sanctification. He's saying to them look. Do not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God. Do not give your body unto lust. Why? For sin shall not have dominion over you. God has willed that this not be so. But I don't want to, that's just the, the first point. I think the, first, the second point is the greatest one. Where Paul now explains the second reason is that the believer is no longer under law but under grace in other words you cannot continue living this kind of life because grace has done something in your life that law could not do this is Paul's point be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us another triumph of grace that the believer is no longer under the law but under grace If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street, in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.